All right, some of you weren't here last week, perhaps, but we did this, uh, we started this reading challenge. How many of you attempted? You don't even have to say you completed, but you attempted the reading challenge. All five of you. Good. All right, I expect big contributions from all of you. So I'm very disappointed. You know I'm looking at you. So, all right. So, anyway, um, there were some questions on the back if some of you were reading. If not, just uh, go through your knowledge of the, the Gospel of Matthew and try to try to think about it that way. Um, the, the main question I was asking last week, and I wanted you to answer in reading through the Gospel of Matthew, was this, the, the question, number one, why was Matthew... Written. Now, remember why we're doing this? We're, we're not like starting this big series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're, we're just going to do a quick little message overview of the Gospel of Matthew to kind of prepare ourselves for Steve's preaching here that he's going to start this Sunday morning. So I wanted you guys to read and prepare yourself and at least uh, familiarize yourself with Matthew a little bit. And since I've been reading through Matthew all summer, I also wanted to just share what I believe the message of Matthew is. So the, the main question, the first question on that bookmark that I gave out out to you was why did Matthew write his gospel? Well, it was it was for a simple purpose. It was to show Jesus as king. Uh, Matthew is written to the Jews, and it's meant to show Jesus as their long-awaited, long-expected king. And also, he writes to explain what happened to God's kingdom when the Jews rejected their Messiah. So if you are writing about the Messiah to a Jew, it is very important for you to first demonstrate that this man is the long-expected king, and then secondly, explain where did all the Old Testament promises of a physical national kingdom with global judgments go? Where, Where did all those promises go? And last week we talked a little bit about the expectation, the eager expectation a Jew would have for someone being named the king of the Jews. And that's, that's what Matthew did. He, he named Jesus as the king of the Jews. But then he also seeks to show why the kingdom didn't come immediately. Now, a few real quick uh, structural things. How does Matthew break up? Uh, How do you divide Matthew up? Well, Matthew is a very easy to understand uh, gospel. It is broken up into five very simple um, um, sections where there's narrative and then there's sermon. Narrative, sermon, narrative, sermon, narrative, sermon, or as, as you know, scholars like to put it, discourse, narrative discourse, narrative discourse. And, and you see this, the first discourse is the Sermon on the Mount, and the last discourse is the, the Olivet Discourse, the, the, the message that Jesus gives while he's sitting on the Mount of Olives and talking about the future judgments that's coming on Israel. That is how Matthew is broken up. Um, Matthew divides his gospel then basically into five parts. First he talks about the king's people, then he talks about the king's apostles, then he talks about about the king's reception or rejection, and then he talks about the king's school. That's his training of disciples once it's clear that this generation, uh, the Jewish nation in this generation has rejected their disciples, uh, their, their, their Messiah, sorry. And then finally, the fifth section is the king's judgment. That's the, the Olivet Discourse where Jesus judges this generation who has rejected him. And, and once again, all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he is building towards this 
this argument. And he makes this statement very clearly at the very end of his gospel in, in Matthew 27. He makes this statement more clear than ever before in the gospel. He says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's Matthew's case. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the long-expected King. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, if you were here last week, you know that that statement was made in the most striking, surprising way. It wasn't made with Jesus on his glorious throne in Jerusalem. It was made with Jesus on a shameful cross uh, through an inscription of a Gentile Roman centurion. A very surprising way for Matthew to say, this is the one you've been waiting for on a cross. That would be maybe perhaps a little offensive to Jewish sensibilities. So, once again, Matthew needs to explain why Jesus is declared king in this way. Matthew needs to explain what about these kingdom promises in the Old Testament. We are going to um, kind of unpack Matthew's case for the kingdom, and I'm going to use four words to explain it. And this is to deceive you into thinking this message is going to be short. Uh, four words, uh, four words, we're going to do this R.C. Sproul style. Four words, we're going to, oops, how could I, R.C. Sproul, you, uh, four works, words about the kingdom. Let's do that. And I'm cool, so I do it like that. So, four words about the kingdom. Four words that Matthew uses to make his case about the kingdom. Now, this is uh, very important for you to hear all these words. I'll just give it to you all up front, and then we'll walk through them one at a time. First off, the kingdom is near, according to Matthew's gospel. The kingdom is near. That's what he really wants you to understand. And then also, the kingdom is far Secondly, the kingdom is coming. Thirdly, and then the kingdom is costly. Fourth, so let's let's talk about it. Number one, the first thing that that Matthew wants you to understand is the kingdom, that long expected kingdom, is described, explained in Matthew's gospel in the beginning of Matthew's gospel as near, and that excites any person who has an Old Testament sense about them. The kingdom of God, that long-expected kingdom, is near. This is the long-expected king of Israel that we've all been looking forward to. In Matthew 1, verse 1, in Matthew 1, verse 1, turn over to that, the, the kingdom is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And where Jesus goes, you see the kingdom Goes. And so as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem uh, and, and comes to earth as a child and then grows and, and fulfills all these Old Testament promises, we see this word again and again in Matthew's Gospel, the kingdom of heaven is near, or as it's probably written in your ESV, is at hand. Now, Matthew 1 through 10 demonstrates the nearness of the kingdom in the person of Jesus. Matthew 1 through 4, we're going to skim, we're going to go really fast. Matthew 1 through 4 um, makes the case that Jesus is the right king. It, it makes the case that Jesus has the right introduction. Or to say it this way, Jesus in Matthew 1 through 4 has the right paperwork. How many of you have been on an airplane recently, right? 
if you, you have to go through how many security checkpoints, right? You got you to gotta first check your bags at the gate. You got to make sure you have your ID there, right? Okay. And then you go through security. Before you even go through security, you have to make sure you have your ID. And then you get all the way to the gate and you have to make sure, once again, you have the right ticket and you have your, your ID, right? They want to make sure you're the right person and you're going to the right place. And, and Matthew 1 through 4 is essentially doing the right th- same thing. It's saying, does Jesus have the right paperwork? And Matthew goes out of his way to show that, yes, he, in fact, is the right man and he's going to the right place, the place that we were all expecting. Matthew 1, 1, for example, notice how it just introduces Jesus right out of the gates. This is Matthew's argument. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you've been reading your Bible at all, you know that these two names are very significant to Israel's expected hope in their king. Notice, this Jesus, he is Abraham's son. He is the son of global blessing. Remember Genesis 12? In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is Abraham's son. And Matthew also wants to be clear, this is David's son as well. Matter of fact, notice he emphasizes David first, even though David chronologically came after Abraham. But it's very important that Matthew emphasizes, this is David's son. This is the man with the global scepter. He is the one who will rule the earth. Verse 1, Matthew tells you this is Abraham's son and this is David's son. He's got the right genealogy. You see that. He's he's in the line of the kings in Matthew 1. And then in chapter 2 of Matthew, you see he's got the right solidarity, which is a word saying he, 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 he... he is with the people of Israel. He is with them in their experience. He, he has joined in their plight. And, and if you read through Matthew 2, you'll see all sorts of things going on. But what I would want to show you is, notice how God's treatment of his son parallels his treatment of Israel in the past, right? Jesus goes to Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. He experiences the same kind of trials. He is called a Nazarene. Jesus has the solidarity, or he is, he is, he is, he is experiencing the same things as Israel experienced them. Also, you could see in these first four chapters, Jesus has the right fulfillments. All throughout these first four chapters, you see the phrase repeated again. And so it was fulfilled. This was done to fulfill. This is fulfilling. This is fulfilling. Once again, hinting you that this man is in fulfillment of all of the promises that we had in the Old Testament. He's got the right fulfillment. And then in three, chapter 3 of Matthew, he has the right forerunner. Notice, John the Baptist comes in in, in chapter 3, verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's that, there's that verse that we get the nearness of. The kingdom of heaven, John is saying, is right around the corner. It's right here. We're right on the cusp of it. Now, John can't be saying the kingdom of heaven is now. It's here. It's present. It's spiritual, right? Because he makes no qualification. He assumes everything in the Old Testament about the kingdom of heaven. And everybody that's listening to him, including John himself, is expecting all of these Old Testament promises when he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's close. Are you ready? Are you ready for the kingdom? This uh, reflects the Jewish attitude. And, and also notice the, the, the necessity of preparation if the kingdom of heaven is near. You have to do what? You have to repent. 
That is the call of the kingdom. If you want to be ready for the kingdom of Jesus, if you want to be in the kingdom of Jesus, that begins with repentance. Turning from your sin and attaching yourself to God's man that he has placed before you. That is Jesus. And then, of course, this is very interesting to me. Jesus appears, is baptized by John, and then he goes into the wilderness and is tempted like Israel was. Once again, we see that solidarity, peace. But then in 4.17, notice Jesus begins his ministry right after his forerunner, his preparer. In ancient days, a king would be preceded by someone who would go before him saying, the king is near, the king is near, get ready for him. Right after John the Baptist disappears from the stage, Jesus' ministry begins. And notice in 4.17 what Jesus' ministry looks like. He has the exact same message as John the Baptist, right? 4.17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's no clarification, there's no qualification, there's no explanation, there's no reinterpretation. No, this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. No, everything that John was expecting about the kingdom, Jesus is repeating in this very message. And once again, notice it's the, it's the, there's, the same, there's the same thing you have to go through to get into this kingdom, to prepare yourself for this kingdom. You must what? Repent. Are you ready for the king to come? The kingdom of heaven is near. Well, further, um, Matthew further demonstrates Jesus to be the king, and this is 1 through 10 once again. Matthew demonstrates Jesus to be the king because not only he has the right credentials, the right paperwork, but also he demonstrates Jesus to be the king because he makes the right demands. But secondly, what we see Matthew do in this first section about the kingdom being near. Jesus makes the right demands. He calls disciples to follow him. And then he gives this sermon. And this is the first discourse. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, This is one of the most majestic pieces of Scripture in the entire Bible. You could spend a lifetime studying and meditating on this passage of Scripture and and get fruit after fruit in your life. But what is this kingdom message about that Jesus is demanding? Well, he is demanding the inner qualities, the behavior of those who would be his disciples, his his citizens in his kingdom, to be right. He makes the right demands. He makes demands like a king would demand. He demands an inner and a true righteousness of the heart. Matter of fact, the beginning of the sermon are these things called the Beatitudes, where Jesus describes the inner qualities of a true kingdom citizen. The inner qualities of a true kingdom citizen. They are poor in spirit. They have spiritual poverty about them. They are mourning for something. They are sad about something. They are humble about something. They are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Why? Because they know how poor they are. Because they know how spiritually bankrupt they are. This is the the true inner quality of a kingdom disciple. They start out poor. And they hunger for a righteousness not their own. And then, of course, Jesus, in this sermon, after these inner qualities, goes on to describe how a disciple relates to the Word of God in chapter 5, to the, the, the work, good works that God has for them in chapter 6, and then the world that surrounds them in chapter 7, right? 
he, he talks all about righteousness and good works, not doing your good works before men, but then also not doing, not doing your good works in love with the world or their things. And then, of course, he ends this Sermon on the Mount with a demand. Will you be my disciple? Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with the most astonishing demands. Not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. A tree will be known by its fruit. And then, of course, in verse 24 of chapter 7, you need to hear these words of mine and do them. Otherwise, your life is going to be like a house that is swept away. Jesus makes the right demands. Jesus demands kingdom citizens, did you notice this, that have new hearts, different hearts than the typical hearts that surround them. Not the kind of hearts that do things to be seen by others, but the kind of hearts that do things because God is always watching them and they know it. He's also demanding new, a new kind of righteousness, different than the kind of righteousness than the world around them. Jesus is a demanding king, and this is one of the demonstrations of who Jesus is. He makes the right demands. But further on in, in Matthew 8 through 10, Jesus also has the right evidences. Then Matthew 8 through 10 is a wonderful passage of scripture that shows the kingdom authority of Jesus. He has the right evidences. Once again, this is all under this heading, right? The kingdom of heaven is near. This is your king. He's got the right paperwork. This is your king. He's got the right demands. This is what I would expect of my king. And this is my king. He has the right authority. He displays the right evidences. You see in chapter 8, there's all these healings that happen. There's this liberty to captives that happens. Demon possession is eradicated in chapter 8. And, and what is this telling us about this Jesus? This is telling us that this Jesus has authority. Authority over everything. He can heal and deliver by his word, by his touch, and my favorite, by even his will. That's how much authority Jesus has in Matthew 8. And no realm is above him. The end of Matthew 8 and the beginning of Matthew 9, we see this when, when Jesus is, 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 is demonstrating authority over the spirit realm, over nature and the sea. There is, there is no authority higher than Jesus' authority. He has the right evidences. And then in Matthew 10, this is where we get to the second discourse in Matthew's Gospel. We see Jesus send out apostles. And a few things that are interesting about this. He sends them out. He sends them out to declare the evidences that he is the right guy. He is the long-awaited, long-expected king of Israel. And notice what the disciples are meant to declare. Chapter 10, verse 7. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, of course, they, they tell of Jesus' authority. And notice, they even have authority, a similar authority to Jesus. They do these signs and miracles to authenticate their message. Look, the kingdom is near. Look at these marks of authority that the kingdom should have. This is what you'd expect. The king is near. They come showing the, the evidences of the king. But then there's something interesting here. As Jesus is giving them instruction for their journey to go give his evidence, he also gives them warning. Expect rejection. Expect judgment. You see that in 10.16, right? Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. Beware of men. 
expect rejection. And well, why should you expect rejection? Because they're rejecting me. Notice, Jesus is offering the kingdom. He is saying it is near, but at the same time, he expects himself to be rejected. He's not at all confused about how the nation of Israel is going to respond to him. All to say, the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, this brings us to our next word. Um, this seems kind of, kind of like an oxymoron, perhaps, to some of you. Uh, right after Matthew establishes that the kingdom of heaven is near, he then begins to state that the kingdom of heaven is far. Kingdom of heaven is far. Now, there was this question on your, on your, on your bookmark. Why does God's kingdom, why doesn't God's kingdom come immediately upon arrival? Why doesn't the kingdom just show up? If the kingdom of heaven is near, why doesn't the kingdom just come? Anybody want to stab, uh, take a stab, a guess or something like that? Why doesn't the kingdom of God just show up? If the king is near, if he has all the right Evidences the demonstrations. Why, why doesn't the kingdom of heaven show up? Anybody? Dangerous. Just guess. Yes, Tate. He needs citizens. What? He needs citizens. He needs citizens. Yes, good. And what else? What were we gonna say? The elect haven't been. Saved. Oh, interesting. Now we're getting really interesting and theological, right? What about me? What about me? If the kingdom came, would I still be born? Is that what you're saying, kind of? There's still a history, maybe? Yes, what? It's all to God's glory. It's all to God's glory? Oh, man. So maybe, perhaps, there is a way that God is pursuing greater glory through rejection. That's what you're saying? What were we going to say? I was going to say all of the citizens haven't been saved Yeah, okay, that's great. I would agree with all of those. And let me also suggest two more reasons why the kingdom of God doesn't come. And this is really practical, really down-to-earth, really tangible for you. Matthew goes out of his way to show you that the kingdom of God doesn't happen because God's people reject their king. Well, I agree with all of those answers that you gave me, but I also want you to see, uh, Matthew says, this is because the people of Israel, like Tate was saying, don't have the right heart for their king. They reject their king. Matthew 11 through 12 the announcement of Jesus by his apostles is met with meh, eh, mixed, a mixed response, mainly negative. Matter of fact, look, look at this, chapter 11, verse 3, John the Baptist, who is kind of the, the picture of the Old Testament saint, the expectation of the long-expected king, John the Baptist, in verse 3 of chapter 11, is confused. What's going on? Where's this kingdom? Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Even the best, even the best Old Testament saint appears to be a little confused. The kingdom is not coming the way we thought. The major cities in Israel, like Galilee and Capernaum, in chapter 11, verse 20, are indifferent to Jesus. And and now, think about this. If these cities, who saw the most of Jesus' miracles do not accept him or are indifferent to him. There is no shot for any city, any person, right? Everybody is going to be indifferent if these cities are indifferent. Then, of course, the big thing, chapter 12 is mainly devoted to the rejection by the religious community. The religious community, as soon as they meet Jesus, oppose him. They reject him. They hate him. 
And notice what they accuse him of in, in 12, uh, 1224. Uh, the crowd, of course, in 23 says, Can this be the son of David? <laughs> but verse 24, When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. By the way, this is, this is an excuse they had for Jesus way back in 9 verse 34. They were already claiming this from the very beginning. They're claiming that he does this by demon activity. And by the way, the crowds aren't really that much better. That, that phrase in verse 23 of chapter 11, can this be the son of David? It is actually used with a specific uh, negative particle. This is the last time I'll say negative particle in this sermon. It's used with a specific negative particle that uh, assumes or expects a negative answer. Or I'll retranslate it like this, right? This can't really be the son of David. Can he? That's what it's saying. What does LSB say? Verse 23 of 11. Can this man really be the son of David? See, there's, there's, a, like a, there's, a, there's a sinister unbelief, right, even in those words. This can't really be the son of David. And, then, of course, the chief priests jump on that in verse 24, and they say, No, he does this by the authority of Satan. Wow. They reject their long-expected king. Uh, as John 1.11 would say, he came to his own to what belongs to him, and his own people did not receive him. Why? How? How could they not receive their king after all of these evidences that he's demonstrated to be? Well, answer simply, they didn't have the right inner qualities of kingdom citizens. Their hearts were wrong. Right? As, as, as Matthew 5, 3-6 through 6 would say, they weren't poor enough. They had too much spiritual riches that they boasted in and prided themselves in. They thought they were all set. They didn't need to repent for the king to come. They weren't sad enough about their sin. They weren't humble enough about their situation. They weren't hungry enough for the righteousness of God. The law had fooled them. Actually, really, it was their sinfulness that had fooled them. They, they saw the law and they said, we can do this. Instead of seeing the law and saying, ah, I can't do this. Who gets Jesus? Not many. Matter of fact, at the end of chapter 11, verse 25, we see Jesus declare this about who can come and get Jesus. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Notice, you need the Father to elect you, it seems to say, for you to even accept the Son. And then notice this, no one knows the Father except through the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Right? Not many come to Jesus. You only can come to Jesus if your heart is made new or what we call regeneration happens in your heart. You can only come to come to the kingdom through the Son. Notice, you have to come to Jesus to get the kingdom. And there's this crazy phrase in 11 verse 12 about between John the Baptist's time and now when Jesus is speaking, the kingdom has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. You can take that all sorts of ways. It seems to suggest to me that you have to be, in a sense, a little bit violent to get into the kingdom. You have to, you have to confess something 
about yourself. You almost have to hate yourself and, and acknowledge something serious about yourself. You have to be poor in spirit. You have to be humble. You have to be hungering to come to Jesus. Only the violent can come. Only those people who are violent come to Jesus. That's one reason that the, the nation rejects their king. Why? Because their hearts are wrong. And we see this all throughout Matthew's Gospel, but particularly in, in chapters 11 and chapters 12. Their hearts are wrong. But I want to say something else. Another reason why the nation rejects their king is because the initial rejection of the king was all a part of God's plan. It was all a part of God's plan. God purposed to send Jesus to this nation while their heart was unfit so that his kingdom plan could really unfold. So so that he may get more glory more glory from his plan. And of course, this begins, um, chapter 13 of Matthew, we see the parables begin. And notice the key phrase there in 13 verse 1, on that same day, Matthew actually doesn't try to make his material chronological at all. And so this is significant in chapter 13, 1, when he says on that day, he's, he's specifically going out of his way to link. This started because that rejection just happened. Those hearts were just revealed. That's why Jesus starts preaching this way. Uh, Parables begin, and, and there's lots of confusion about parables, but parables are really, notice here, a response to rejection. That's the original context. Jesus was very clear in the Sermon on the Mount how he speaks. But then he starts speaking in parables, and he's very unclear. And, And somebody also has described parables this way. Parables are to mercifully conceal information so that more judgment isn't heaped on top of rejecting sinners. But also, parables, as we see in, in Matthew 13, aren't supposed to be a mystery to all. They're simply supposed to be a mystery to those who are unbelieving, who do not repent. But actually, we see at least two times the disciples come to Jesus and Jesus says, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. And so we can say uh, the parables are to graciously reveal previously unknown information about the kingdom of God. I Notice I didn't say parables are to graciously reveal a new program, a new plan about the kingdom of God. No, this is just previously unrevealed information about God's kingdom. And, and what, is, what are they revealing? Well, the kingdom was near in the person of the king, but because the people rejected him, now the kingdom is what? Far. The kingdom is far. In, in the parables, we see that kingdom citizens receive the word. That's why they're kingdom citizens. They're like that soil, the good soil. We also see about the kingdom that it will be delayed and it will be searched for. That's the parable of the pearl. We also see that the sons of the kingdom will grow up in an evil world. That's the parable about the weeds. We see that the kingdom will see phenomenal growth in citizens through this delayed period. We also see that the sons, while they grow evil will also be secretly mixed in. And that's referring, I think, to the church age. Notice the kingdom is not the church age, but it is delayed during the church age, and kingdom citizens are growing throughout this age. And even Jesus says at the very end of all those parables, the parable about the the household manager, um, kingdom citizens will be able to understand the secrets of the kingdom hidden in the old and revealed in the new. 
All to say, the kingdom is revealed as far, as delayed, but all a part of God's plan. And then in Matthew 14 through 18, Jesus will then train up his disciples in light of the fact that the kingdom is delayed. So 14, 15, you do see Jesus interact with the crowds again. This is where he feeds the 5,000, the 4,000. This is where you see his ministry expand to the Gentiles as well. But the primary purpose of this section in Matthew 14 through 18 is to train up the disciples. He is constantly withdrawing from the crowds and spending time with his disciples. He reveals himself more fully to them. Matthew 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 17, the transfiguration happens. And then, of course, at the end of this section in Matthew 18, you see Jesus gives a discourse on greatness in the church age and greatness in the kingdom. The basic, the basic question is, how do you deal with sin if Jesus has forgiven you of all your sin? How do you deal with sin in the community of the saints? You take it seriously, but also you never withhold forgiveness if someone is asking for it. Why? This is true greatness in the kingdom. Someone who is humble about sin and careful about it in their own life and in others. Now there was a final reading question I had for you. What happens to God's kingdom plan, God's kingdom program, once the king is rejected. What happens to God's kingdom program? And this is where I get this third word from Matthew 19 on. We see that the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is still coming. This is this is a phenomenal thing. Even those even though the Jews reject their Messiah, He still comes to them, humble and mounted on a donkey. Even though the kingdom is delayed from our vantage point, it doesn't mean it is canceled. It doesn't mean it is changed. It doesn't mean God is reinterpreting it. By the way, God never cancels anything. God never changes. And His program is still in play. Matthew doesn't even seem to suggest that there's been a change in the kingdom because we see in this section, Matthew talks about the church and Matthew talks about the nation of Israel. Matthew 16 and 18, Matthew speaks of the church for the first time. And in Matthew 19 and 25, Jesus, Matthew, speaks about the nation in the future. For example, Matthew 19 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Right? This is still a future thing. It's far, and it is coming. Or Matthew 25, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another. The kingdom is still future. And the promises to Israel still matter. Basically, the king and the kingdom still are going to come. And this is God's plan to get more glory on this earth, on this world. He's not just giving up on this world. He's getting glory from this world world. But notice a few things. This kingdom, this kingdom has been taken away from the current generation that has rejected Jesus. This is, this is very clear. 
In Matthew 21, Jesus has the triumphal entry. And then three times, Jesus says, three times, essentially, the kingdom of God has been taken away from you and given to those of whom it is deserving. The kingdom of God has been taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruit. The kingdom of God has been taken away from you and given to those in the highways and the byways who are more worthy than you. And of course, in in Matthew 23, we see Jesus' woes, his sermon of woes. Woe, he's saying again and again and again to this generation because they have rejected me. Woe. Woe, by the way, is not a statement of wish or desire. Woe is a statement of fact. Woe. Woe to you. Judgment on you because you have rejected your king. Terrible things are going to happen to you. But also we see the kingdom is taken away from this generation, but we also see that the kingdom is still future, and it will come with judgments and rewards. And this is where we get to Matthew's last discourse, and this is the the Olivet Discourse you see in Matthew 24 through 25. And this begins with the disciples pointing out to Jesus the splendor of the temple and Jesus basically saying, saying this whole thing is going to be destroyed. And then the, then the disciples ask him two questions. When will these things be? And then secondly, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That's, that's 24 verse 3. Two questions. Jesus answers these questions, but in reverse. He first tells them the signs of his coming. And then he tells them when these things will happen, and then he gives them some application. What about that? What what are the signs of his coming? Well, he gives us all of these signs in Matthew 24, including this thing called the abomination of desolation. He also warns not to get too excited early on about certain signs, because these are only the beginning of the birth pains. But But then he says something after this entire section. He says, when all of these things have come to pass, you know that the time is near. Or he says in in verses 32 through 35, all of these things will happen to this generation. Now, obviously, he's not speaking to that current generation that's listening to him because none of these things have happened to that generation. He's saying all of these signs won't happen over the totality of the church age. All of these signs will happen in one generation of people at the end of this age. We would call this the tribulation period. And you can see it even separated into two parts. These are the signs of Jesus' coming. And then Jesus answers when this will happen in verse 36 and his answer is you'll love it you don't know no one knows right so what's the conclusion you better be ready because you don't know matter of fact in jesus in both of jesus's coming there seems to be this there seems to be this urgency you don't know even from this side of the tribulation, we still should have this imminence about the Lord's return. We don't know when he's going to come back. And Jesus is very clear about that even on his, on his coming after the tribulation period here. And then, of course, he makes some applications. When the basic application is, therefore, in verses 44 of of chapter 24, therefore you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And then Jesus gives a parable about a household manager, about ten virgins, and about these talents. And all of them are basically saying the same thing. I will come at an unexpected time, and I will bring unexpected judgment. It's very interesting. A lot of people are going to think they're in the kingdom, but not. And I will also bring unbelievable rewards. So, ready or not, here I come. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. And he ends this Olivet Discourse in verse 31 of chapter 25 with this statement of what that judgment's going to look like when he sits on his glorious throne. Ready or not, 
here I come. The kingdom is future, but it is coming. It is imminent. That is the key word. Let's look at one last word. One last word to describe the kingdom in Matthew. Um, some commentators say, well, from, verse, uh, from chapters 26 to the end, Matthew's already kind of made his arguments. He's, he's, he's basically said everything he wants to say about Jesus and the kingdom. Now he's just kind of, you know, tidying up, you know, kind of just putting a conclusion on it, which I agree. But I think Matthew 26, correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew 26 through 28 that includes, I don't know, his death and resurrection are very significant. So I would say there's something else that Matthew wants us to know about this kingdom, and it is, it is, it is shown to us in these chapters, and that is that the kingdom is costly. The kingdom is costly. It's coming, but it is costly. Matthew has made the case for who Jesus is. That's the first ten chapters of Matthew. Matthew has made the case for why the kingdom didn't initially come. That's the next eight chapters of Matthew. And Matthew has also explained what is happening to the kingdom now. It is in the future. It is coming. That is Matthew 19 through 25. Now his argument's complete, but there's one final significant thing to say, and that is to declare who Jesus is one more time in a very striking way. And how does he do this? Matthew 27. Remember this last week. 27, 36. This is the first time that Jesus is fully declared to be the king of the Jews. Matthew 27, verse 36. On the cross, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is a mocking title. Matter of fact, if you read this whole section, verses 32 all the way through 44, there are more titles for Jesus given in this section in mockery than ever before this in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is is packing the titles and the declaration of who Jesus is in incredible density. We, We have to look here and say, why is he doing this? Why is Jesus here? here of all places in Matthew's Gospel, declared to be the King of the Jews. In this section, he is the King of the Jews. He's the rebuilder of the temple. He's the Son of God, the Savior of others. He is the King of Israel. He is the one who trusts in God. He's the one who desires God. He is the Son of God. All of these titles in mockery, Jesus is declared to be. Why is the cross then? Why is the cross the best display of Jesus's royalty that Matthew can find. Why is it here that Matthew says, this is where I want to emphasize Jesus as king? Answer? The cross displays the power of the kingdom most. And the cross displays the power of the king most. This is the authority of Jesus. This is the power of Jesus. This is the power of the kingdom. And this is where you should get particularly excited. Remember what Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Does Matthew want us to see the power of God in the cross? Yes, I think he does. Just a few... Just a few things leading up to this there's there's bleeps of there's 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 hints and 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 little clues about the power of the cross leading up to this for example remember way back in matthew 8 
Remember 8, where, where, where Jesus' authority is being displayed? He's got the right authority. He has authority over everything, his word, his will. Anything goes. He's got authority over any realm at all. Matthew tucks in this little reference in all of these healings over there in Matthew 8, verse 17. All of this, all of this was, he says, f- was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. Matthew plops that quote down right there in the middle of Jesus' healing ministry. But that quote is from Isaiah 53, which is talking about Jesus on the cross. Is, 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 is this section fulfilling Jesus on the cross. Well, it's talking about illnesses, but really that's talking about spiritual illnesses on the cross. There's a connection there, but what is it? Why does, why does Matthew choose right here in Matthew 8 to, to emphasize Jesus' cross work? Why, why is this so significant? Well, you could say, well, Jesus can do all of these things because he is God. But notice Matthew is, is, is emphasizing something else. He's attaching Jesus' power to do all of these things, his authority, to what he has done on the cross. And can we suggest this? The cross gives Jesus the foundation and authority to do all of the kingdom restoration that is required. The reason why Jesus has authority over the curse of sin and all of its consequences in our physical lives is because of the cross. You can say it this way. This is the power of God that you see on the cross to restore the world and remove the curse. That is what's happening on the cross. Jesus is showing the power of God, laying down the foundation of that power because on the cross, He paid the penalty for sin. We can also say the, the significance of the cross is, is all throughout Matthew's gospel, and, and he continues to show it in power. In Matthew 16, Jesus is, is beginning to explain to his disciples who he is. And as soon as Peter gets it, verse 21 says, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and be crucified. Notice, this was the plan all along, and it was the plan for the cross to what? To crush the power of the serpent and Satan. Matter of fact, we see Satan is most concerned about stopping Jesus' cross work. This is the power of God to defeat sin and Satan. That's what we see on the cross. That's royal power. And it's no surprise then when we come to the cross that Matthew then booms with excitement and wants to emphasize the importance of the cross to Jesus' kingly rule. Matter of fact, notice what Matthew plops down in the middle of Jesus' death. Verse 51, the centurion... No, sorry, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Then the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, and they were filled with awe and said, This truly was the Son of God. Notice, Matthew tucks away a incident that happened on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, into the death of Jesus. Because why? He's trying to connect you to what the cross of Christ has done. 
it has unleashed the power of God to resurrect sinners. It has unleashed, get this, the power of God to spiritually resurrect you. It has released the power of God to regenerate your heart and make you the kind of kingdom citizen that receives Jesus, that is hungry, that is poor, that is humble, that is eager for the righteousness that is found in Christ alone. That is what the cross of Christ does. This is the regal power of God on display. This is the power of God to redeem and to regenerate you and your heart. This is a costly kingdom because it required the very death of the king itself. I like the song. This the power of the cross, son of God slain for us. What a love. What a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for blessing us with it. And we pray that we would be faithful with this message. I pray that there would not be a heart in this room that is not humbled and changed and softened by your sovereign hand to the power of the cross. We pray that we would see this, believe this, and rejoice in the coming of your kingdom in your son, Jesus. Amen.